So tonight I want to talk with you about sila as a path, a way to really find our true identity and a path to embody that identity and a place where we, into which we can let go of all the various identities that, whether they give us pleasure or torment us, they are not ultimately fulfilling for us. And because I'm now living in Los Angeles, although I'm from Cambridge, Massachusetts, I've lived in Los Angeles for 11 years now, and so this talk will be in two parts. It will be tonight, and then there will be the sequel. So um, this is what we do. I mean, actually, I could probably do do four versions of it. Um, they do more and more now with each film. But I guess we'll have to wait and see. The film has to have some success, although how we know that here, <laughs> I'm not sure, because it's a kind of captive audience in a way. I guess if next time the theater is empty, we'll know. Um, so this sila or shila in, in Sanskrit means integrity. It's about our good heart, and it's sometimes translated as virtue, ethics, morality, self-discipline. That word discipline is kind of a tricky one because it evokes some things that are not so pleasant, like punishments. But if we think of the original, the source of that word, the root, and the word disciple or the one who follows, and if we think of discipline as the courage to follow what we love, then we can translate sila as discipline. It's really a beautiful word. And it means, too, the, that which cools the intense, broiling conflicts and emotional reactivity that visit our minds and hearts. Sila is like sitting under a waterfall in the heat of blazing emotions. It's a soft, cool breeze in the desert of urgency and restlessness. It's where we can find relief and shelter from the storm. And the word integrity I like too because it it refers to the wholeness, the wholeheartedness, the undivided heart, which is a refuge for us. And externally, of course, it has to do with non-harming, non-violence. And internally, it means having metta, karuna, kindness and compassion, love for ourselves and our world. And, of course, innately we have all this capacity. We're deeply involved in it here. And and that's the good news, the Buddhist good news of original blessing instead of original sin. The good news that Jack talked about, I think, on Tuesday. The one who knows, meaning awareness, Awareness suffused with kindness, um, with metta. So tonight I want to focus on two of the mindfulness trainings, the precepts that we took at the beginning of the retreat. I'm not doing them in order, mostly because my mind is not very orderly. And so they link together in, in certain ways that hopefully I can convey to you. And the two that, um, that I want to focus on are the guideline of not stealing or appreciating what's given and not lying or being honest and telling the truth. 
and to look at them from a practical point of view, but a practical contemplative point of view, that is, in terms of our mindfulness practice as instructions for our contemplative work here, as well as our relations with others, but here it's much simpler. These precepts or guidelines or mindfulness trainings are often seen as the beginning of the path, but they're also, and they are, the beginning of the path. But as we internalize them, they become the way that we are led more and more deeply led on this path uh, to the abiding place of our, our true nature. And our true nature, this is what we actually want to identify with. If we're going to identify with something and the mind does, in the text, it's called um, the Pabasara Chitta. I really love this expression that the Buddha used. The Pabasara Chitta. Chitta means both mind and heart. And it's, he says it's, um, it's the radiant mind, the radiant heart, the mind of clear light, and he pointed out very clearly that even though we may not experience it that way much of the time, that the mind's true nature is radiant. And that the brightness is not something we have to create or look for literally, like seeing light in our meditation or feeling horrible because we don't. Um, Just the brightness of clarity very simple. And that brightness is understood to be our intrinsic nature, our birthright, really, of consciousness. That the mind is, or the heart, is intrinsically radiant and pure. And that it's only due to, they were called adventitious visitors visiting forces that Winnie was talking about this morning, um, the hindrances to our clarity and presence, that we suffer. But the good news is these visiting forces are not inherently who we are. They're not intrinsic to who we are. To identify with this Pabasarachita and to know when we are identified with that which is not who we truly are, not of love, not of clarity or kindness. This can be seen as both the beginning and the end of practice, the beginning point and the goal. In Zen practice, we used to talk about it as um, host and guest, so I'm going to give you, I'm giving it away if you're ever in a Zen retreat and you're given a koan about host and guest. And you think, you know, what, what, what is this? And, you know, these questions, they're designed to stop your mind and uh, just to stop the ability to figure it out. But I'll tell you, um, just in case, it'll still be hard to come up with a spontaneous um, expression of your truth unless you're really present but the host is awareness itself who we truly are and or this loving awareness as uh, Ramdas and Jack are um, we're, we're saying and and then the guest is the guests are everything every everything that arises or appears in our consciousness uh, just like we are guests in each other's lives. The thing about sila is that often, if you're like me, when you contemplate your sila, when you consider or you hear about integrity and goodness, uh, the mind seems to go 
first to our shortcomings or our failures or our mistakes and imperfections. And yet, when we reflect on the goodness, the good things we've done, the kind things, the, um, I don't know, the mistakes we didn't make, we can reflect on those, the non, the mistakes we didn't make, then there's a wonderful sense of lightness that comes about. It's sometimes... It's sometimes called the bliss of blamelessness. But even without going that far, we can just turn our attention to some of the goodness of who we are, which is a form of metta practice, really. And it also retrains our brain. Nyaponikatera, who wrote this classic, The Heart of Buddhist Meditation, said, to that which we bring attention, to that does the mind incline. When we bring attention, that's when our neurons fire. And the neurons that fire together, wire together. And so in this way, experience is always shaping our brains and changing its structure. So we can use this phenomenon of the malleability and pliability of our brain, not just our consciousness, to strengthen, uh, to strengthen our sila and our appreciation for it. Um, so this first one that I want to talk to you about, the stealing, the not taking that which is not given, this essential attitude of gratitude, and appreciating our life, I want to um, suggest that we can look at this from several perspectives. One of them is, it's not the way that we usually understand it of, you know, taking something from somebody else, but we can look at it as that which we take from ourselves too that we may give away things like our own sense of authority or our own sense of inner sufficiency. We may hear a teacher say something and it's not our experience and suddenly doubt arises. Oh no, I'm doing it wrong or I've really missed the point. Or we are ready often to give away our sense of our own inner Uh, truth or authority or intuition, our trust of ourselves. There's a story that I heard recently um, about, it's it's a true story that a Tibetan friend of mine told me, is this happened in Tibet, and it's a story about a teacher, a very charismatic teacher, who had lots of uh, devotees and From the description of this teacher, you sounded a little bit inflated. And anyway, he came to a village, and the villagers were very excited to welcome him. And he gathered everybody together, just kind of the way we're gathered together, and he said, tomorrow we're going to find a hidden treasure called a terma. And these are um, mysterious treasures that are said to be placed maybe centuries ago by a great being and then they're found and they contain teachings. Um, So he said, we're going, I know, I have, I can see with my wisdom eye where this treasure is hidden. And tomorrow we'll hike up to the mountains together and I will find it and reveal it to you. So everybody was very happy and looking forward to their hike the next day. And then that afternoon, uh, up in the mountains, there were two yak herders, young boys, and they were just, you know, hanging around with their yaks, and they saw the teacher hiking in the mountains. And, you know, you kind of notice somebody who's new in the area, and they were watching him, and, and they saw him hide something in the rocks. 
So being mischievous, they waited until he left, and they went to see what he had hidden. And it turned out he had hidden a sacred, you know, a statue of a deity. And being mischievous, they took it. And, of course, they had heard what was going to happen the next day. And they pooped in the hole where the statue was (laughs) instead. So the next day, the teacher gathers all the villagers and they go on their hike up to... And, and he knows exactly where he's going because his wisdom eye can perceive where the term is hidden. And he gets there and lo and behold, <laughs> it's not there. And instead, right, we know what's there. Now, if it was you or me, we'd just feel terrible and be covered in shame at that point. But he did not miss a beat. And he said to the villagers, this is your bad karma. The statue was stolen because of your lack of devotion and faith. And everybody felt so terrible and dejected because they had completely given away their own sovereignty, their authority to this teacher, and everybody was very dejected and they kind of slunk home and, you know, felt like they needed to practice more, of course, um, to make up for this. And the teacher left. But of course, at a certain point, the boys had to tell. So we can only imagine that the villagers felt a lot better about themselves (laughs) after that. Um, But this is a story, for me, it, it... It's a kind of stealing, not about the boys who stole the statue, but about the teacher who stole uh, the trust of the villagers and about the villagers who were willing, in a way, to um, give something away that they needed to keep for themselves. So how do we steal from ourselves in retreat? Sometimes we steal time from ourselves. You know, we might go back to our rooms and just... I remember at a three-month course in IMS in Barry, Joseph asking me... I was sort of track to track mindfully all my activities, and at one point I said, you know, and then I go back to my room, and he said, what do you do in your room when you're in there? And I said, well, truthfully, I putter. You know, I just putter with my stuff, or I wash my socks, or I make, you know, I just kind of... And he looked at me and he said, you putter? (laughs) And it wasn't until I saw the look on his face, a kind of disbelief mixed with a little bit of, um, maybe a lot of aversion, um, you putter, that I realized that it was a kind of uh, stealing from my retreat time to take those breaks and just, you know, putter around in the room. And we do it on our cushions, too. We find time for all kinds of trivial pursuits from the beginningless past and the endless future, right? Um, Or by, with our comparing mind, There's an expression in Zen, um, don't steal, don't draw another's bow, don't ride another's horse. In other words, stick with your own experience. The Buddha wanted us to be very direct with this practice. Very direct. And uh, like Pascal last night, very simple and direct with the practice, not looking around to see what anybody else was doing or guess what they might be thinking or experiencing, but really being attentive to how it is for each one of us and the power that we have, the ability, the capacity to be aware, to be aware 
of whatever arises in our experience and of our relationship to that. And we can see how sometimes the mind itself, our thoughts and ideas can be a thief. How many times do you have the experience of some some moment of clarity, of peace, of of clear seeing or knowing or and then then the mind just comes in and makes some comment about it, right? And it evaporates. And so we can we can steal our experience our uh, by appropriating it and identifying with it or hoarding it and taking it up again and again. Um, or expectation can steal it by catapulting us into worrying about outcomes and results of, our, of whatever method we're practicing instead of just doing the practice moment by moment. Um, doubt can come and, and steal it away. So the gift that we give when we establish ourselves in the second precept of not stealing, but further, more than that, appreciating our life and being generous with ourselves, uh, surrounding the breath with a feeling of dana, of generosity, or... Um, taking care of how we leave our shoes and how we treat our cushions and leave our shawls and um, appreciate what's given, whether we you know, try to pile up the little support cushions in case we get into pain, or whether we're willing to take that risk and leave them in the pile, even though we might need them for somebody who might need them more than we do. We give the gift of uh, fearlessness, of saying with our lives and and how we're living, um, I'm not going to take anything from you. That's not offered. I'm not going to. I'm not going to hurt you. I'm. Uh, I'm not going to lie to you. And and the animals here, they. They know it. Well, I think the lizards aren't so sure, or the frogs aren't so sure, but the turkeys, the deer, they sense it. You know, they become trusting and, and fearless with us. One story about generosity. My daughter, when she was six years old, she was always very aware of creatures. And, and I remember one day, she had a popsicle, and it was a warm day. And she went outside, and she was letting... I mean, she'd you know, take in between licks of the popsicle or bites of it. It was kind of melting. And she would, she'd found this um, trail of ants... And she was letting the popsicle drip into, just near the ants, who were, of course, overjoyed uh, to have this, this sugar, sugar water. And ants have feelings, too. Once I heard a story um, on NPR about somebody who had made some kind of ultrasonic recordings of ants. And they had recorded ants' c- communications with each other. And ants, they recorded ants that were trapped in a jar. And they were distressed. And they, it sounded kind of like, something like that. Um, Anyway, so it was really a kindness for her to feed the ants, and I'm sure they sounded something like, um, while they were eating their popsicle. Uh, so this, this generosity, it's, it's, um, it's also the generosity of, as I was saying um, at the beginning of the retreat, of 
just trusting that this moment has the ingredients that we need to wake up. It seems like all human beings suffer from a sense of um, incompleteness or something lacking. Leela was talking about this the other night. Um, And I just have to tell you, because this always uh, comes to my mind when I talk about this, and I shared this with my colleagues, and I just want to say in the spirit of gratitude and appreciation, this is such a wonderful team. I feel so lucky to be on it. I love everybody on this team, and some of us have worked together for years before, and uh, some of us, like I couldn't wait to get Winnie on a team that I'd be on. This is our first time on a team together, but it's very joyful and... uh, I just want to express my gratitude to everybody. So this cartoon, this is a New Yorker cartoon, and you can imagine, um, it's one of those cartoons about therapy. And so the, and it's quite dark. The room is quite dark. And the therapist is sitting with, um, it's always a man, his clipboard. And uh, the patient is lying on the couch And the therapist is looking at the clipboard and saying, yes, these feelings of inadequacy are very common among the inadequate. (laughs) You know, he's just kind of normalizing the experience so that uh, we don't feel too upset about it. So it seems as though these feelings of inadequacy are in something missing, you know, something incomplete, are really at the heart of why there is a need for a mindfulness training about not taking that which isn't given or not stealing. And for us to begin to trust um, the way the Buddha did, you know, he was a wandering saint, he carried his begging bowl. He was bringing peace to all those whose lives he touched with his very presence. And he offered his bowl in this gesture of complete receptivity and vulnerability too. So this too is a way that we can practice um, appreciating our life, appreciating the gifts of being here in this retreat, appreciating the gifts of each moment, um, being in this, um, once Gil called it, he said, be like a sponge. Just being in this absorbing, receptive mode of, of, uh, of receiving. And it's really, it's a pretty joyful way to be. So the second of the mindfulness trainings that I want to share with you, I think it's actually number four, it could be three or four, but is the one about honesty and telling the truth. I guess that story about the teacher, that could also have been, that could have fit in here too. The um, appropriate relationship to everything that arises in our experience here is one of honesty, of being willing to be mindful, to see what's here, to um, to bring an attitude of, yes, honesty, but openness and willingness to tell ourselves the truth of what's happening. Um, and these states of openness, of clarity, of honesty. Um, Honesty that is colored with or suffused with kindness or compassion, this is, again, who we most truly are, who really lives inside us, this um, papasara citta. And when we practice the guideline or the precept of truth-telling, it brings us closer 
closer to being able to recognize and realize and just know so deeply that this is truly who we are. This is a story um, of Martin Luther King when he was at a kind of crossroads of crisis during the, it was late January of 1956, right at the nadir of the Montgomery bus boycott. And to me, it's a story about his honesty and and vulnerability. He said, I decided to take my problem to God. With my head in my hands, I bowed over the kitchen table and prayed aloud. The words I spoke to God that midnight are still vivid in my memory. I am here taking a stand for what I believe is right. But now I'm afraid. I'm so honest. The people are looking to me for leadership. And if I stand before them without strength and courage, they too will falter. I am at the end of my powers. We know that feeling of just being at the end of your strength. I am at the end of my powers. I have nothing left. I have come to the point where I cannot face it alone. And that's what he said to God. And then he goes on. At that moment, I experienced the presence of the divine as I had never experienced it before. It seemed as though I could hear the quiet assurance of an inner voice saying, stand up for righteousness, stand up for truth, and God will be at your side forever. So, he was so honest and so open and so clear about how it was for him in that moment. And he trusted that to be able to tell the truth of this experience and share it, open his heart in his faith, um, his faith in God. But it was really, um, it was just so humble and though most of us uh, may not be in such a position of such intense responsibility, we certainly all have our um, moments of challenge. And I think his honesty and openness and our own and each other's is the greatest gift, one of the greatest gifts we can give each other. Jack was reminding me that uh, the Jataka tales that, I think it was Leela, was it Leela who talked about, yeah, um, that through all of these stories of the Buddha doing this and doing that and the mistakes he made and um, that through all these stories the one mistake he did not make was to lie. He didn't lie about what was going on and what happened. And that's what enabled him to move on the path through all the paramitas, that is the spiritual strengths and qualities that he developed um, through these tales of various lifetimes. So whatever he did, and no matter what he did, he told the truth about it. And it's the truth that freed him, just as it's the truth that frees each one of us. So when you're sitting there wretched and maybe overwhelmed or anxious or, you know, whatever tormenting state may be present when you're just certain that there won't be any end to the pain in the body or the mind or the heart, um, then just to see that, oh, 
I can be aware of this. I can tell myself the truth about how this is. It doesn't matter that this is my experience. And this is so hard for us to believe that it actually doesn't matter whether we're wretched or soaring with sublime, I don't know, insight and spiritual um, strength that what, and of course we prefer one to the other, but that what really matters is the relationship that we have to each experience. It's, this is very hard to, um, to believe and, and maybe Winnie will talk about this when she talks about faith. But this longing for special states or pleasant states or states that we've read about or this feeling of having lost it, whatever we had, it's gone. Um, you know, the Cinderella, the clock struck midnight and suddenly the coach is just a pumpkin and the horses are just these little mice running around. You know, whatever that feeling or sense that we have, um, we can, or, you know, we can, or maybe it's just that we're happy or peaceful and we're not used to it. So we're kind of waiting for the other shoe to drop. Um, to be able to see this, to be able to actually tell ourselves the truth about what so, this is the jewel of awareness that liberates and um, it's like what Jack was saying about his experience with Achan Cha, where he had all those meditation experiences in Burma, and then he came back to the monastery. And I mean, he wasn't exactly bragging; he was just um, sharing and reporting the things that had happened to him. But of course, there's always this little corner. I'm not saying Jack had it, but we usually have this corner that wants our teacher to be pleased with us, right, and approve of us. And then, you know, Achan Cha said, it's beside the point. It's not the experiences that you had. It's the one who knows these experiences and the steadiness and presence of knowing all the experiences and how we relate to them with what kind of steadiness of heart. It's a quote from Krishnamurti. He says, when the mind is still, tranquil, not seeking any answer or even a solution, not resisting or avoiding. It's only then that there can be healing, renewal, because then the mind is capable of seeing what's true. And it's the truth that liberates, that frees us, not the effort to be free. Uh, So, I think it was um, Tija who left this note that today, Friday, March 8th, is International Women's Day. Um, And what that is is a global day celebrating the economic, political, and social achievements of women, past, present, and future. Even in... No, past, present, and future. And in some places, like China, Russia, Vietnam, and Bulgaria... International Women's Day is a national holiday. Um, it honors the work of the, the women who campaigned for the right to vote, the suffragettes, celebrates women's success, and reminds of inequities still to be redressed. Um, the first International Women's Day event was run in 1911. Um, and this is a quote from an article that uh, is from the Shambhala Sun of an interview with Ani Tenzin Palmo. And I want to tell a story about uh, her relationship to honesty. But it was an interview with Ani Tenzin Palmo and Gloria Steinem. And the question that um, Ani Palmo is asking, it's about women, but it could be a question that has to do with any sort of internalized oppression, racism, homophobia, um, being of different abilities, whatever it might be. And Palmo said, what I want to ask you, Gloria, really truly is, why did it happen? Um, And she's talking about, she said, women are 
strong and smart, and I'm paraphrasing, um, why did they get into the position of being subjected? And we could ask this, could, as I said, it could be people of color, it could be the poor, it could be, why is it? Is it because we don't stand together, we don't respect each other, we don't respect ourselves? What is the fundamental reason? And, um, and Gloria Steinem says, oppressive systems don't work unless they're internalized. And clearly, ideas of inferiority are internalized in us. The movement of liberation is about talking to each other and discovering that it's not true. So she's really talking about uncovering a deception or a delusion that can be very deeply rooted in the psyche and being able to see that and the power of being able to see that um, so that we can not believe the stories that that feeling generates. This is a story I want to tell you about Ani Tenzin Palmo. She is the nun who sat for 12 years in a cave, three of those years, in intensive retreat. And her story is, uh, of her retreat is told in a wonderful book called Cave in the Snow. And years ago, when I was one of the resident teachers at the Cambridge Buddhist Association, uh, I heard that she was coming to Boston and she had been doing a series of teachings on women in Buddhism, so I invited her to our center. I was so excited when she accepted and, you know, made flyers and told everybody in all our sanghas in the area. And, and, um, and everybody turned out and came together and the zendo was packed and, and she arrived. And I was really excited to hear her talk about her experience of women in Buddhism and we went into the shoe room together. We sat down in the shoe room and we're taking off our shoes. And she sat there quietly for a few minutes. She didn't say anything. And I sat there with her thinking, wow, she's really mindful how she takes off her shoes. And then she said to me, um, would you mind if I changed the topic of my talk? Of course, I minded horribly. <laughs> I was so attached to that topic and wanting to hear her talk about it. But of course, I said, no, not at all. <laughs> That's a white lie, because she was my guest. Um, uh, I know. I know. I didn't really predict this part of the talk, but... Uh, <laughs> There it was. I lied. I lied. I won't be in a Jataka tale. Um, but at least I didn't lie about lying. So maybe that counts, right? So she proceeded, you know, in the Zendo, it was packed, and she, she gave a talk about the precepts, the guidelines for mindful living, and I must confess, my beginner's mind just took a holiday. I was so um, disappointed. I thought, we, we, we know about the precepts. That's a beginning teaching, right? Um, this was years ago. And we know about the precepts. And, um, and only later, when I came to understand some things that had been happening at our center, that I had been in complete denial about. I hadn't seen them because I didn't want to see them, because they were too painful, and they involved um, somebody I loved so much. So, but she had entered our center, and she sensed something wasn't right. And she trusted her intuition. And she spoke to what she was absolutely right, needed to be said that evening, needed to be said. 
um, and it was really only later that I was able to um, just be in awe of her respecting her intuition and being free enough to follow it in spite of what had been advertised and put on the flyers and what people were expecting from her. Um, so this was, this was the integrity of really her, her not lying to herself about what she needed to do and not lying to us, but being so, so completely honest. Um, And I just will just tell you one more brief story to close with, uh, which is about how we can come to know our delusions or be lost in them. Maybe some of you saw a movie called A Beautiful Mind. Did you? It's a movie about a professor who struggles with a mental illness. And when he goes into his illness, he's really incapacitated. He's disabled as a teacher. And he um, just inhabits a very a world of complete delusion where he is disconnected from what's actual and real. And the movie is a story about his healing. And at the end of the movie, he's back teaching and he's uh, understood about his mind. And he teaches his class successfully. Everybody is so happy to see him healthy and sane and to have him back. And after he teaches his class, the camera follows him as he leaves the building. And when he comes toward the door, oh, this part always makes me cry. He, He comes toward the door and there are the people who are his delusions standing by the door, the ones that he plays with when he's disconnected from reality and goes into their world into his world of being with them. And they're just standing there, beckoning with their smiles. And there's a moment you don't really know what he's going to do. And he just, he looks at them, and he sees them. Of course, he's the only one who sees them. There are other people walking with him. And he gets a little smile, and he nods to them. And then he just keeps walking. It was such a beautiful moment because this is um, the activity of the Pabasara Chitta, right? The mind that is clear and open and sees what's there and doesn't stop to play with its delusions but sees them as visitors. And there was nothing aversive in his response. He nodded, he smiled, and he kept on walking. So may we greet all of our various delusions and mistaken identities and uh, sad stories about who we are with the same measure of steadiness and kindness, that little smile and a nod. I see you. And may we just keep breathing, walking, moment by moment, keep going, and appreciate life revealing itself to our attentive presence. So during this next week, until we come to the sequel, um, just, yeah, let the sound of the frogs lead you beside the water. Um, there's not really water in the stream yet, but just to sit still and let the stillness of this retreat water your heart and 
restore your pabasara citta. And doing this, surely the goodness and mercy of sila will follow you all the days of your life here. So thank you for your kind attention. Let's sit for just a moment. Thank you everybody for your practice. It's a great privilege to have the chance to be here with you. Thanks. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.